Hi, Glenn Rifkin here again from Briefings Magazine at Corn Ferry. So how do you define competition in the corporate world? Let's pick up a conversation we had with Harvard professor Michael Porter, the world's leading expert on the topic. How do you define competitiveness? We, in some of reading some of your stuff, that so, seems such a basic question. But Yeah, well, I think uh, you know, competitiveness for a company, we don't tend to use the word competitiveness for a company, but competitiveness for a company is, is around you know, uh, having a competitive advantage mm-hmm. uh, in either you know, uh, superior uh, you know, value, which allows you to differentiate yourself and get a, a higher price, or uh, you know, innovations that allow you to achieve lower cost positions. So right. you know, all competitive advantage you know, can be sort of manifested in either higher prices or lower costs. Right. You know, rarely, sometimes you can, you can achieve both, but that's, that's usually not very stable. Um, and, and so from a company uh, perspective, you know, uh, competitiveness, if you will, or competitive advantage is rel- relatively concrete. When, you, when you're talking about uh, a country right. uh, or a city or, or a region, there you're not, uh, it, you can get tripped up if you try to think about competitiveness the same way as you do for a company. Okay. Um, uh, and what we've come to understand is that, that you know, a, com- a, a, a country or a, a region is competitive. Um, if uh, uh, it can uh, achieve uh, higher productivity in how the citizens of that region actually work and generate you know, value in the economy. And productivity is what underpins um, uh, an improving wage and an improving standard of living. Right. Uh, but we've also come to realize, and this is something we really stress in our HBS Competitiveness Project, that that when we think about you know, competitiveness uh, of, a, of a region, we have to think about companies being productive and therefore able to compete with other locations. But we also got to make sure that, that the average citizen is, is benefiting as well. Right. And, uh, and, and actually, productivity allows both. Uh, you know, if we have the right kind of uh, environment, we productivity will allow companies to do well, even as the worker is doing well. Uh, but so much of the discussion about competitiveness is really one or the other, you know, and folks on the right tend to think about, you know, can the companies compete? And, and the idea that we should lower wages, you know, to be more competitive is kind of what you hear people saying, which is kind of crazy because, right. you, know, you know, lower wages are a failure. Right. That means that you're not competitive and yeah. you need to kind of uh, take a pay cut. Disincentivizing. And disincentivizing people. Um, we, we, we also, however, it's true that if workers are, you know, getting higher wages and companies can no longer compete in that location, that's not competitiveness either. So I think that in the U S project, we've been focusing really on how we can create the shared prosperity for the companies and for the, and for the average citizen, the average worker. And, and, and once again, the, the, the productivity is what allows that to happen if workers are a lot more productive, then they can get paid more, and that doesn't work against the competitiveness of the company. So, uh, because it will be at the end of the day competitive. So, um, we're this this whole question of what is competitiveness, and you know how do we think about it for a, a region versus a company, and and how do we not trip up in thinking that when we lay off, you know. 150 people and the company gets more productive in the short run how do how do we not confuse that with actually success that's not success uh, right. if, if you know if we fired 
25% of American workers, our economy would be more productive for a while. For a while. Uh, but it wouldn't grow. And uh, so I, th- I, think, I think this is a, a profoundly important question. Yeah. I work around the world. I, you know, I work with, I've worked with many countries over the years and le- national leaders. And this is frankly a debate that many countries have. They, yeah. There's a lot of confusion about this. There's a lot of people think that it's a zero-sum game, that, that you know, if companies are going to win, then workers have to lose or the average citizen has to lose. And uh, it, it ultimately, it, it has to be win-win. Yeah, and it's such a hot-button issue now. It's a hot-button issue. saying election we're in the middle of. Absolutely, and, and what's happened to America, and this is you know work that we've now been doing for four or five years on the U.S. Competitiveness Project, is is that our economy, you know, starting in the late '90s, you know, uh, and, and 2000 at the latest, uh, something fundamentally changed, mm-hmm. and we got on a different path. And uh, talk about that. That's uh, you know. Um, you know, we uh, let's just take some of the. We have a, a. When we talk about this, we have these things we call disturbing trends, and you know, one of the disturbing trends was that job generation dramatically slowed down. You yeah. know, starting in in around two thousand. Right. Uh, this economy used to be a job machine, and something, you know, some set of factors ultimately slowed that down. We think that has a lot to do with globalization finally reaching its. Um, its potential to uh, where where, uh, many other countries could actually now compete with us because they had raised their skill levels, they'd raised the quality of their infrastructure, they had stripped out some of the worst, you know, corruption and complexity and and all of a sudden, uh, you know, Thermo Fisher Scientific, which is one of our great Boston companies, when they couldn't find enough engineers, you know, here at reasonable costs, they actually set up a major facility in Lithuania. And there were going to be lots of good engineers there, and they were quite well trained, and you know, they got fifty percent of the wages. And so, what I think, I think around the late '90s and 2000s, there'd been enough progress in the rest of the world, and and, and frankly, not all that much progress in the U.S. in improving education, improving our infrastructure, and so forth. That that we we saw that that bend in the curve mm-hmm. uh, and that is that has continued um, and we've also in the US we've also particularly been failing at creating what we call traded jobs those are those are jobs in industries that where we compete internationally so automotive uh, airplanes mm-hmm. uh, uh, and all the jobs that we, we've tended to create for the last you know 15 plus years are what we call local jobs those are jobs in Healthcare delivery or retailing or things that are inherently local where we really don't have to compete. Right. And it was pretty unsettling for us to see that. And and uh, and, and and underlying that, uh, we see we see we see that wages have have stagnated. Yeah. The median income has actually gone down in real terms, uh, and the 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 po- the need for skills has grown. So unless you had a college degree or more uh, for the last 15 years or so, you've seen very little progress in, right. in your wage. And, um, and uh, you know, at the same time, uh, there's just metric after metric that show that we've been kind of falling behind in uh, our regulatory complexity, our, uh, the quality of our infrastructure, the, uh, our tax system has gotten very disconnected with reality. And nobody, 
wants to fix it. They're, 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 there's just rhetoric on both sides about how I'm right and you're wrong. And, and, uh, and yet, every day that goes by, we have another inversion. You know, we lose right. another company. And we simply have to get our corporate tax rate down to, you know, 27% or 26% or something like that, which is not low. It's just in the ballpark. And, and we've got to fix this international uh, system and install a kind of more territorial system like other countries have so that American companies will bring their capital back here. Yeah. Uh, now, now we have the highest statutory tax rate and uh, companies pay the German tax and they don't want to, and that might be you know 25%, and then they don't want to pay 10% more to bring it back in the U.S., so they leave it overseas. And, and the Democrats think that it's a giveaway to reduce our tax rate, but but you know we, we can do it in a revenue neutral way. We mm-hmm. just we just we're, right now we're in a mess. So there, what we found in the U.S. Competitiveness Project is that we've just you know we we have some compelling strengths in entrepreneurship and you know risk capital markets and quality of management is very good and American companies, particularly the larger companies, are doing pretty darn well mm-hmm. on a global basis, but. Uh, innovation. Uh, um, innovation is strong, but America as a location to do business is not doing well. And um, and that's not because of hard stuff. It's because we haven't made progress in relatively simple things where pretty much everybody agrees we need to. Is it just politics that keeps it from happening? Well, I think we are... We think that politics has been... You know, one of the major problems that that really is the root cause mm-hmm. uh, of why we haven't fixed some of these things. Yeah. And uh, uh, as as this project has unfolded, I personally am, you know, even though this is not my field, I'm spending more and more time thinking about that. Now, why is that? What's happened here? How do we think about our political system? Why isn't delivering what we want? Why why do we have gridlock? You know, the numbers are overwhelming in terms of respect for government officials by the public right. uh, uh, you know people's uh, you know view of how our political system is functioning and the and I think the the Trump phenomena in, in a way is kind of the boiling point of the anger about us not actually getting anything done and you know we've been talking about immigration for a decade and we haven't fixed it, you know, right. because because we have a structure, a political structure now, where the where the parties really want to win, you know, uh, the battle based on their game or their ideology, rather than finding that compromise. Yeah, and, you know, we can't compromise anymore. So that's a deep question. You know, stay tuned. Uh, um, yeah, I'm actually, uh, you know, with with uh, a, a co-author that knows much more about it than I do. I'm, Really impressive writing a, a paper on that oh, okay. right now. So it'll be a good topic for us to discuss. I mean, how does and one of the sort of offshoots of this is all about the free trade conversation. That yeah, the, the free trade conversation is one where we've now, you know, it's 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 one where we, I think, now that we've been pounded for fifteen years, you know, and people see stagnant incomes and they see fewer opportunities and. Uh, that the fear factor uh, and the kind of rhetoric about the negative effects of, of, of trade um, are, you know, I, 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 I'm senior enough now to be have been there during the whole NAFTA process. Mm-hmm. And I know President Clinton pretty well, and, you know, 
was you know part of the process of trying to make everybody get comfortable with that as something that we we needed to do. Uh, uh, but today we have a very different starting point in terms yeah. of people's security and sense of confidence. Mm-hmm. And and the, uh, the the democratic side is. Uh, and even some of the Republican side are uh, reflecting that and and kind of politically uh, adding credence to that that perspective. I mean, the irony, of course, with Asia is that we are basically open already, mm-hmm. and they're closed. So the idea that we could do anything but win, uh, you know, actually uh, by getting access to those markets and starting to and disciplining some of the massive distortions and subsidies that have kept us out of you know and dis, or disadvantaged our companies in China or elsewhere in Asia it's just crazy yeah but uh, but the I think the general public given the the last decade or so is is in a, in, a, in a state of fearfulness and lack of confidence and uh, and you know uh, the data suggests they should have that because we things have not been moving in the right direction in this yeah. country, and I think people recognize that. And I think they and part of it is is what citizens do or don't do, but I think a lot of it has to be with what's now perceived as really a failure in government. Mm-hmm. And you know we were the ones that you know invented the modern democracy and. We, we were a society where, from a political point of view, we um, were able to pass legislation and implement things time and time again that were innovative, that were first in the world, you know. Uh, and, and it was those innovations, in, whether interstate highways or universal public education or, the, you know, DARPA or the, the you know, venture, NASA, capital. venture capital that allowed us to succeed. But now there's a... A, a, fear, a fearfulness and a lack of confidence that uh, I think is uh, uh, a real problem. Uh, so, um, has this U.S. competitiveness project um, surfaced any prescriptions? Are you optimistic? Well, we have we have a we have a uh, you know we have uh, I think I think we would say that we're uh, m- more optimistic about what the business community can do itself. That you know, uh, and w- when we started this work, we very quickly realized that we, uh, you know, waiting for government, you know, was not necessarily going to be the right way to think about it. So I think we spent a lot of our energy on kind of re-educating the business community and how they need to take responsibility here um, in the in their c- communities, in their regions, in their cities, and right. how to do that. And we've published a lot on that. Uh, and there's a lot business can do, and I think business is in a different place now than they were, you know, six or seven years ago. I think we see more companies voluntarily raising wages for low-income people, re-engaging in training, lots of participation in regional efforts. But the the most progress, both in business and in government, tends to be at the state and local level. Yeah. Uh, at the federal level, there's there's not much to be optimistic about at this particular moment. We published uh, in a you know short paper in The Economist uh, a couple of years ago sort of our eight-point plan. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've seen that. But it, it talks about for Washington, for the stuff that Washington controls, what are the, what are the keys, uh, key things we need to do? And 
uh, and we can give you that paper sure. and you can look at it. Uh, what we found was that there was, as we surveyed our alumni, which we now do about every year on this topic, we found there was like overwhelming consensus that, oh yes, of course, we have to do these things. Um, um, we actually, through many trips to Washington and you know, engaging with many members of Congress and members of the Senate and the House, uh, we found that as long as we were in their office and talking to them privately, they said, of course, these are things we have to do. But what we found is we've virtually done nothing. Uh, and these things were like quick hits. I mean, if we did these things within a year or two, we would see, but it's not like changing the education system, which is 20 years. So um, I think the, uh, so we have put forward uh, uh, some, a strategic plan. We've got some dyed in the wool members of, of our political uh, system that are determined to do everything they can to make move those things forward, but we've had limited progress there. But there is a lot going on at the state and local level. Governors do better than, than and mayors do better than, than members of the Senate and the House in Washington, partly because they're closer to the ground, they're closer to the community, they're less likely to get caught up in really pure politics rather than the citizens are much more aware of what's happening and can link progress to people as opposed to, oh, the Senate or the House. Yeah. You know? And now the president, you know, kind of, no matter who the president is, it seems like they all face the same problems. Yeah. So, so, um, so I think, I think we're, this is a, I mean, I was much, much younger, but the last time we saw anything remotely like this was during that period when Japan was rising. And the Japanese companies had clearly found a better way of competing. Yeah. That was largely, uh, it wasn't that their whole system was different, but it was that companies were able to, using kind of lean and total quality thinking, right. they, were able, they were able to achieve unheard of levels of quality and efficiency compared to us. Um, and, you know, that was during, uh, you know, President Reagan's time, and he created a, you know, U.S. Commission on Competitiveness, and there was never one before, and there's never been one since. And that we a bunch of leaders came together and sort of tried to diagnose what was going on, and a lot of great things happened. And we sort of retook the ball from Japan, and right. Japan is languishing right now. But... Aside from that period, which was not nearly as challenging as the period we're in today, because it was really just one country, right. um, we've never faced the kind of numbers and lack of progress that we've seen in America in probably a hundred years. You know? Is it also um, business leadership or the lack of that's having? Some well, you know, we think that business leadership and the uh, kind of some of the established thinking in business, you know, definitely got in the way. I think companies started seeing themselves as global. Uh, and unfortunately, they didn't realize that just because they were global companies didn't mean that they could give up and stop investing in their communities and mm -hmm. making sure they had the right suppliers and the right universities and the right training and the right people to hire. Um, and I think that was a lesson that... Uh, many business leaders now have learned, and I think again we're starting to see business shift back in the other direction. We also saw business leaders um, sort of uh, trapped in the the notion of, you know, my job is to you know maximize near term shareholder value, and um, you know uh, 
I, and so, so many companies have been winning by you know cutting rather than winning by yeah. uh, by innovating and growing. Uh, we saw a lot of outsourcing because the formula seemed so perfect. You could take a hundred thousand dollars a year worker and replace them with a thirty thousand dollars a year worker, and the sort of knee jerk reaction was that was that was going to drive profitability. What we're seeing now is a lot of the outsourcing went too far. Uh, and if you actually understand the real math uh, with logistical cost and inventory cost and having to supervise these far-flung operations and so forth, actually the outsourcing didn't really pay off. But mm-hmm. So I think we're on the business community side, I think I'm, I'm very encouraged to see us, the business community now, not, you know, given all the scrutiny and criticism, as wanting to be part of the solution, I think understanding how to do that, all that's improving. Uh, again, we see some progress at the state and local level, although you know there's more that can be done. Uh, the big, the big challenge we have right now is is federal policy, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, the federal government you know really controls fundamentally our national budget, our uh, major entitlement programs, or corporate tax system. I and mean, yes, they're state corporate taxes, but they're they're minor. Uh, the government has a phenomenal big impact on infrastructure. Uh, government is the one who has to set the trade policy, right? Uh, and at the federal level, uh, uh, and uh, and and in these critical areas where we've allowed ourselves to get really out of out of sync and and behind, uh, regula- regulation is heavily driven by the federal level. Um, uh, that's the area where, at this particular moment, there's little to be optimistic about, and. Um, and the more I study the political system, we we need structural change there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you know electing the right candidate isn't going to solve the problem. It's 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 way beyond any candidate. It's 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 been uh, baked into the fundamental structure of uh, how our political system works. So again, a long discussion, but right, a little right. premature for me right now to sure. talk too much about that. Yeah, yeah, it's. Um... It's kind of depressing when you. It, it is watch kind of depressing. It. Yeah. It's it's like it's like a train wreck. You know, it's very depressing. Yeah. Um, I know you have to get going, but just you've talked about the importance of entrepreneurship in the shared prosperity, and I wondered if you might just talk about that for. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, when you start um, opening up your view about. Um, the opportunities for a business to uh, improve revenue, improve growth, improve productivity, um, and if you uh, through actually moving into the world that most people would call social, um, I, I think that you know the first thing you've got to do is start seeing those things as an opportunity rather than not your job. You know? right. So uh, you know the 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 you know traditional quip that everybody uses is Milton Friedman. You know the the res- social responsibility of a business is to maximize its profits. Right. Leave me alone. Right. And then I'll pay my taxes. I'll hire people. I'll I'll invest. You know, and and that's my responsibility. Leave me alone. I, I I'm not there to solve social problems. But uh, and um, but I think increasingly we're understanding that actually the societal needs. You know. Affordable housing, healthcare for you know underserved populations; those issues, one by one, are actually 
the biggest market opportunities we have because those are unsolved problems. I mean, we, we've solved all the easy problems. We have lots of products and features and functions, and yeah, we can tweak our, you know, our hi-fi system, you know, our iPhone. iPhones, you know, and we can make those a little bit better, but the really big gaping needs are, you know, we have millions of people in this country who are obese and, and they're inflicting tremendous costs on themselves and on our society and, you know, what if we could figure out how to deal with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, or what if we could find a way to really deliver really high, co- low, high quality, low cost, affordable housing? What if we could actually uh, find ways to use water better or minimize pollution or avoid the landfill or, you know, all these things. So I think the companies, the first obstacle companies have is, is to kind of get their head wrapped around this as an opportunity rather than either somebody else's job or something that they're going to get beat up about if they don't have some kind of a social responsibility program. Uh, But then you tackle your point, which is the need for innovation because, uh, you know, traditionally many, Companies, you know, business models and ways of approaching the market, their value chain, if you will, was really designed to serve sort of middle-income customers uh, with kind of conventional needs. And uh, all of a sudden, if you if you start trying to figure out how to uh, substantially reduce, you know, uh, energy consumption and carbon emissions. It's not just an incremental change over the way we've been doing it in the past. You really have to step back, and, and, and so there's a lot of innovation necessary. Innovation in the product, of course, but also innovation often in the channels of distribution and uh, the um, kind of way you work with customers. And, and that's very vivid when you're talking about uh, developing economies and, uh, you know, how to how to sell, I mean, right, let's, a great example is, is the pharmaceutical industry where that industry has been largely perceived, uh, you know, over the last decade as getting increasingly saturated. And because, you know, uh, we were serving, you know, all the customers that, you know, we could serve and we could only sell so many drugs, you know. But then the industry started realizing, well, that there's maybe, you know, you know, a billion people that were served by the pharmaceutical industry the way it was conceived historically. Right. But but what about the other, you know, five billion people in the world, you know, or however many there are? And those people are largely poor. Yeah. And they're not living somewhere where there's a, you know, well-developed healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and so how do you meet that need? And the pharma industry, uh, you know, and, and the suppliers to the farm industry have now, you know, after, you know, kind of not knowing quite what to do, have now found a lot of very interesting models. So, you know, GE is a good example in their, in their so-called, uh, uh, they, they have a sort of a major health, you know, focus, healthy imagination, I guess they call it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they make a lot of, uh, imaging equipment, including, uh, uh what do they call it? The sound base, the uh, ultrasound. ultrasound. Yeah, and you know, a typical ultrasound, you know, required a, an electric plug, and it required expensive consumables, and and it was heavy, and it was costly, you know. And they figured out that if they could just 
get the core functionality down and bring the cost down to 50 bucks and you know find a way to you know put you know solar you know solar uh, uh, electricity generation or uh, better better batteries or whatever they could they could make that product accessible in poor countries even in rural areas yeah. that 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 no matter how hard they tried couldn't actually even use the traditional product and so we're seeing lots of efforts to kind of re-engineer products make them accessible we're seeing new ways of distributing and training doctors and educating consumers and uh, we have a wonderful case on uh, on Novartis uh, and others that we can share with you. Uh, the FSG Shared Value Initiative has got a whole library of these examples that mm. you can. So it's fsg.org. Uh, you okay. can find all this stuff. Um, so uh, I think I think, uh, and then then the kind of surprising thing happened in this journey, which you know various people have recognized, but. If, if you tackle the problem of, of how to care for diabetics in China, which Novo Nordisk did, and you know how to better engage the patient and how to educate the clinicians and so forth, and if you kind of re-engineer your, your product and service offering you know, around how to do that, it turns out that actually a lot of the stuff you figured out, actually you can bring back home. Mm. And it allows you to kind of ex- extend the, the business models and value right. chains in the in the advanced world. So, I think we're seeing um, a really uh, this is a very positive thing. We're seeing a sort of flourishing of innovation mm-hmm. that we had kind of run out of innovation. You know, kind of meeting the traditional needs of the traditional customers through the traditional channels. But now that we sort of realize, well, there's more out there than that. Then then all of a sudden innovation is picking up again, and um, and a lot of companies are sort of on this train and and very excited about it. Thanks so much, Professor Michael Porter. It's been a pleasure.